turn in the scriptures to John chapter 9. We're studying a biography of Jesus that was written just a few decades after his crucifixion and resurrection. It was written by one of his closest friends who lived with him for a few years. This man, John, observed firsthand Jesus's perfect life, his powerful teaching, his amazing miracles, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension into the sky, his promise of his return. John witnessed it all. The biography is called The Gospel According to John because it is a news report according to John as the witnesser, as the witness, the the testifier. Gospel means good news. You might say great news or the best news ever. It is the message that there is a way for us to be forgiven and right with God through Jesus and to be rescued from eternal death away from God, through Jesus. The gospel, the best news ever, is about Jesus because Jesus alone can forgive us of sin and give us hope beyond the grave. It's great news. Now today we've come to the ninth chapter. We've been chipping away at understanding this book and its portrayal of the glory of Jesus since before Christmas. And over the next month, we have, Lord willing, some glorious studies to look forward to, like next week, Lord willing, chapter 10, the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. John 11, he is the resurrection and the life, and he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 12, he's the one who Isaiah saw high and lifted up in the temple 800 years earlier, among whom the angels were surrounding, saying, holy, 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 that's Jesus. That's this man John's writing about. The month of July is John 9, 10, 11, and 12, if the Lord wills, and I'm just eager for what's ahead. I want to begin this way. It's the 4th of July. And I want to begin with an account of a pastor in a different country. He's a, an evangelical Anglican named John Newton. In the summer of 1778, 1778, two years after our independence, he was writing from Olney, a little bit north of London, and he was lamenting to a Christian friend about the state of his country, England. He writes, A war with France and with Spain is imminent. America, gone. Our disunion from America is an event of such great importance, so suddenly and irretrievably brought about that it seems to me almost like a dream. I can hardly persuade myself it's true but we must abide by the consequence. Well, when we get to heaven at last, all will be well. And I know that even at present, 
Those who fear the Lord have no great cause to be alarmed. He knows his people, where they are, what they need, how to protect, provide for, and support them. And if he permits them to share in general troubles, he can give them strength and make them joyful in tribulation. He felt like his own country was imploding. And in that moment, he ran for security to the Lord. And he said, in that moment of implosion, when everything seems insecure, those who fear the Lord have no great cause to be alarmed. He trusted in God's grace. It was less than one year later, in 1779, that he published with a friend a little book of poems, about 300 poems. It was titled Olney Hymns, because that was the place it was published. It contained one of the most famous hymns ever written in English. Newton titled it Faith's Review and Expectation, meaning when I look back, it strengthens my faith so that when I look forward, I look forward in the future with faith. Faith's Review and Expectation. It wasn't a great title that stuck. It soon came to be known under the title that we still know it as today, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. When Newton writes, was blind, but now I see, he's quoting John 9. He's reflecting on amazing grace that Jesus gave to a man who was born blind. And so I want to read together John 9 and fix our attention on Jesus who can make blind people see and who can give people security when times are so tumultuous. What we read here in John 9 takes place in Jerusalem right around eighty thirty, a little less than six months before Jesus is crucified. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. He's saying suffering is not always caused by personal individual sin. But instead, he's suffering with blindness so that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that God could highlight his power through what he's going to do in this man. Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day, night's coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's reiterating what he had said in the previous chapter in John 8, 12. He's going to, in other words, show He's going to do a miracle, a sign, that shows people who he really is. He's the only one who can rescue the world from its darkness, from its life under the curse of sin and death. And having said these things, having explained what he's about to do, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. 
I think he's reenacting Genesis 2-7 when he had formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He's going back to the dirt. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Shalom. Shalom. And John gives this little translation. That means sent. And that is John's way of tipping us off to the deeper meaning. Jesus says, I want you to go to sent and you'll be healed. In other words, the one who can remake this world and rid it of the curse is the sent one. As Genesis 49.10 puts it, you might put it next to Shalom or Shaloah. There is going to be conflict until one of Judah's descendants named Shiloh comes. The sent one comes. Jesus is saying the sent one who can rid creation of the curse and restore its blessings is here. He spit in the mud, remade the man's eyes, and said, it's the sent one who recreated you. Wow. So, He, this man who had been blind from the time he was born, went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, yeah, it is. Others said, no, it just looks like him. But the man himself kept saying, I'm the guy. So they said to him, then tell us, how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man named Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. They said, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. As one writer calls it, this is the first interrogation. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes. And according to their man-made rules, that was a violation of the law because Jesus was doing work on the Sabbath and he was commanding a man to go do work on the Sabbath. They're missing the point, of course. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, you can hear this from two different perspectives. Anyone who is amazed by the miracle is saying, that's how he did it? And everyone who hates Jesus is saying, that's how he did it. He's guilty. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Note how John keeps stressing through these chapters that Jesus divides people. He divides humanity. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, I think he's a prophet, which is not a bad answer, but still not quite fully accurate. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he was actually the one who had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, 
Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. That means he is legally able to give testimony, testimony that's binding in court, which means he was at least 13. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and interrogated him. They said, give glory to God. That's a formal, very religious way of saying, stop lying and finally tell the truth. We know that this man's a sinner. And he answered them, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This man may have been blind for a long time, but he was not slow. (laughs) He's brilliant. He is quick on his feet. And yet... They reviled him, saying, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. And they presume that Moses is a much more significant figure than Jesus. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this, were not, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him without interacting with his logic one bit. They answered him derisively. You're born in sin, utter sin, And you think you could teach us? And they cast him out. That means they formally excommunicated him from the synagogue, from the Jewish synagogue. That is something that still happens to many people who convert to Christianity. They get kicked out of their uh, former religious community. Jesus, verse 35, heard that they had excommunicated him. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've now seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. Jesus tells this man directly that he's the Son of Man. And the man who had been blind answered, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. That is the only right response if you know that the Son of Man is standing in front of you. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who 
think that they see may become blind. They might realize they're blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are you saying that we're also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, or you realized that you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, it's obvious that your guilt remains. The message today is going to be relatively brief. I'm going to give the main point and three applications. In order to understand the main point, you have to understand that the chapter opens and closes with blindness. The chapter opens with the blindness of the disabled man, and it closes with the blindness of the religious leaders. The man's physical blindness is a parable of their spiritual blindness. It's an illustration of it. His blindness from birth illustrates the human problem that all of us have from birth. That man couldn't see the realities of the blue sky and the dark green trees and the beauty of a human smile. He couldn't see. And that illustrates the fact that not one person comes into this world, not one person is born with the ability to see, to recognize, to appreciate that Jesus is the Son of Man. That Jesus is the one person appointed by God the Father to rule forever on this planet. That we humans are made by him and for him. That is as real as the clear blue sky. And no one comes into the world naturally being able to see it. The physical blindness is highlighting a spiritual blindness. The fact that we are blind to Jesus' glory and rightful authority. Instead, every one of us comes into the world in one way or another saying, I don't need Jesus. I really want to be my own authority. To jump right to the heart of the issue, you've got to look back at verses 35 to 38, really the climax of the passage. This is actually the sixth conversation in John in which Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, and it's the time he does it the most direct. In verse 35, Jesus asks if he believes, this man born blind, if he believes in the Son of Man. Verse 36 The man basically says, I want to, but who is it? Jesus says in verse 37 very directly, it's me. And in verse 38, he worships Jesus. And then Jesus goes on here at the climactic conclusion to point out that the man who was blind can truly see. But it's obvious that those who think they can see are actually blind. They're unable and unwilling to worship the Son of Man. So I'd put the main point of John 9 like this. I've wrestled with whether to simplify it more. I've, I've opted to leave it a little longer. I'll leave it up for a little while for those of you who want to just kind of soak in it. The main point goes something like this. Jesus is the Son of Man. 
Those who refuse to submit to his authority are willfully blind to the greatest reality and will be judged for their guilt, while those who bow before him are fully remade and will experience eternal life. We will eventually experience life that is completely free from the curse of sin and death. Jesus is the Son of Man. Those who refuse to submit to his authority are willfully blind. They're blind to the greatest reality, and they'll face judgment for that. While those who bow before him are fully remade, just like this man born blind, and will eventually experience life that's completely free from the effects of the curse. Now, to fully appreciate this, I have to show you again something I've shown you twice in recent months. I have to show you what Jesus means when he uses the phrase, the Son of Man. When he refers to himself again as the Son of Man, he's making the most audacious claim. According to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, one like a Son of Man, that's the key term, came before God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And the passage says that to him, this one Son of Man figure, this human king, to him, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gave dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the word for worship him. His dominion is an eternal dominion. It'll never pass away. His kingdom is invincible. It will never be overthrown. That's what Jesus is referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man. In other words, when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man. He is claiming to be the one who is worthy of all political power on earth and the one who is worthy of worship by every single person on earth. That's what he's claiming. As C.S. Lewis famously said, don't give me any nonsense like Jesus was just a good teacher and he was just a good kind man. A man who claims to be the son of man is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he's the Lord. He doesn't give you an option of saying, yeah, he's a nice guy. I kind of want to follow his example. You either reject him as a liar or lunatic, or you worship him as the Lord. If you acknowledge the truth that Jesus is the Son of Man, according to John 9, you can see. If you can't acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of Man, if you don't worship him, you're blind. 
That's the very simple message of John 9. I want to apply it in three ways. The first way is this. You must acknowledge that you're born spiritually blind. If you have never acknowledged this, you're still blind. Those are the clear words of Jesus at the conclusion of the passage. Again, the man's physical blindness was an illustration of spiritual blindness, of how every single human is spiritually blind from birth. No one comes into the world able or willing to recognize Jesus for who he really is, the Son of Man. Instead, every person must actually come to a point where we realize that there is conflict between us and God. That I want to be my own authority, but God made me to live under his authority. Until we come to realize that there is an authority conflict, we can't ever say with this man, I was blind, but now I see. Until we realize the authority conflict, we are still guilty of trying to shirk God's authority. The only way to be rid of your blindness is to very first, very firstly, to acknowledge it and to submit to the Son of Man. When you acknowledge Jesus as the Son of Man, you will be able to see. You'll finally be able to see that the sky is blue. Can you personally say, I once was blind, but now I see? Only if you've personally submitted to this reality that you were born blind, you've acknowledged it, and you've submitted to the Son of Man. I urge you, if you've never acknowledged your spiritual blindness, your vying for authority with God, to acknowledge it now, soften your heart, and turn to Jesus. Second, you must accept that following Jesus comes with ostracism from those who are still blind. For siding with Jesus, this formerly blind man was excommunicated. He was hated by some of the most respected people in his community, and he was barred from even having a chance to form friendships with those he grew up with. Further, it seems that, more or less, his parents disowned him. They left him out to hang to dry. Right? They basically said, let him take the consequences for all the words he's saying about Jesus. We want to distance ourselves. Rather than siding with their son, they sided with their community. They cared more about acceptance in their community than they did about the well-being of their son. It's sad. And we need to learn from this that following Jesus comes with persecution. That is very true, horribly true for many believers around the world. And it's even true in relatively minor ways. I say relatively minor ways. For some in this congregation, you have come to personally acknowledge your blindness and to submit to the Son of Man. You've come to acknowledge it. 
and your family in your traditional religious community, your family has ostracized you. This sometimes happens with families who come from a Roman Catholic background or who come from a liberal Protestant background. You start saying, I'm a sinner and I personally need to trust Jesus in order to experience his forgiveness. The only way to be reconciled to God is through personal faith. You start saying things like that and they say, I want nothing to do with you. They start saying, you're one of those holy rollers. Have you got, gotten sucked into a cult? They yell at you. Many times, at least for a season, they disown you. You don't get invited to family Thanksgiving. In the grand scheme of things, these are relatively minor forms of ostracism, but as many in our congregation can attest, they hurt, they're agonizing. And this is part of following Jesus, being ostracized by others. Now, I should say, it is possible, and it happens, that the blame is on us, right? That some of us can be very bully-like in our tone with our unsaved family. We can be very arrogant and bossy. And I don't typically like to hang around arrogant, bossy, bully-like people, okay? And, And if that's the case, you know, and some of you have, I know, already done this. You've gone back to your family and you've said, man, right after I became a Christian, I was so excited, but man, it was mixed with a lot of pride that was still remaining, and God's brought me to see that that was wrong, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I was wrong, please forgive me, that kind of a thing, right? Sometimes there can be a distancing because, wow, you're in kind of a cage stage, stay away, whoa, you know. Yeah, we don't want it mixed with pride, we don't want it mixed with, uh, with harshness, but many of us have experienced the ostracism that Jesus told all of his followers that would come. And if that's you, I want you to know that just like for this blind man, following Jesus will always be worth it. I can guarantee that when you enter the kingdom and you track down this man, where's that guy that I read about in John 9? And you're introduced to him. This is the man who had been born blind that finally came to worship Jesus as the Son of Man. And you say, I read John 9. And I read that that you got ostracized from your whole community. In fact, your parents seemed like they kind of disowned you. Was it worth following Jesus? He wouldn't hesitate one bit. He would say, totally. If I had a thousand opportunities to determine whether I would follow Jesus or whether I would cow under the the fear of of sticking in my family and my community. He'd say a thousand times over, I'd follow Jesus, I'd follow Jesus, I'd follow Jesus, it's worth it all. No question. The third facet of our application, how this passage should shape our lives is you must trust 
that every ounce of your suffering has purpose. And I want to say this includes suffering during your blindness or suffering after you've been made to see. One of our dear brothers, whose precious wife is presently suffering with the horrors of ALS, was feeding on this passage, John 9, earlier this week. And he sent a few of us a letter describing the encouragement he got from it. And he said, pray for us that we will see our suffering not as meaningless, but as purposeful. And he went on to explain it like this. He said, please notice in John 9, 3, that the disciples were focused on the cause of the suffering. Why did this happen? Jesus, however, pointed to its purpose, the goal of the suffering. He wrote, It was that the power of God, that the work of God, that the glory of God would be put on display in this man's life. So thankful for Ron writing that. Tri-County, God's ultimate purpose in all of our suffering is to highlight the power of the Son of Man, to reverse it all. That's the ultimate purpose. Jesus is going to be glorified when he shows his power to set everything wrong right. What are we going to think, Christians, the next time we're in the presence of Jesus and we see Gunner? Ever since May of 2020, Gunner has been safe, healthy, active, and happy in Jesus' presence. Christian, what are you going to do the next time you see Dan after he so suddenly passed of cancer? and is now before the throne, as Revelation 7 says, with blood-washed robe, hungering and thirsty no more, and with every tear wiped away. When you see them the very next time, you're going to think, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is awesome. He's the only one who has the power to forgive sin, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to undo the curse, to restore blessing on earth. He's the Son of Man. All our suffering is going to highlight his power. And he is actually going to be more glorified for conquering all the suffering like he does. Now, whether that thought helps you has everything to do with how highly you think of Jesus. If you think that Jesus is basically like a CEO 
of a pretty good company, you know, you can endure a lot for a good boss, for a boss that you respect. But there comes a point where the stress on you for serving that boss and working for that company gets so much that you say, I got to quit. My life's just not worth it. If Jesus is basically like Fortune 500 CEO, no, get off the train. Jesus looked at this man born blind and said, I'm the son of man. The one standing here before you is the son of man. If he's the son of man, he's the creator become human. He is the one appointed by God to be king and rule forever on earth. He's the one by whom and for whom all creation exists. If he's the son of man, your suffering is going to highlight his power to undo and reverse it all, then your suffering has purpose. Every ounce of your suffering has purpose to glorify the Son of Man, the one by whom and for whom you exist. We need to live with this conviction. Because it's the fourth, I'm just going to end where I began. I'm going to say, I wonder if you're concerned right now politically about our country. And I wonder if you regularly connect the truth of this passage, that Jesus is the Son of Man, to the news that you hear. I opened with John Newton's concern over England shortly after the American colonies had irretrievably broken away from England. Do you remember how he said to his friend, those of us who worship Jesus have no need to be afraid of the future. Rock-solid confidence in Jesus in full view of news headlines that were concerning him. Why don't we need to be afraid of the future? Because Jesus is the one appointed by God to be king forever on this planet. He's the son of man. Our security isn't found in our country, in its leaders, or in the outcomes of its wars. Now, I think we should pray for our country. I do, we do. We should thank God for our country. I try to take time every 4th of July to reflect on glorious aspects of our country's history. So thankful. We should be thankful. And we should be involved in ways that are appropriate for our gifting and our opportunities in terms of influencing our country. And yet, our hope and our security is unshakably in as Greg prayed, a better country over which Jesus is king and in which our true citizenship lies. Our security is unshakably resting on the Son of Man. And we should remind ourselves of that on this 4th of July. Here at the conclusion of the service, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and we're also going to remember that the Son of Man, as Jesus famously said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. That's who I want to be my king.